Appalachia is a 200,000 square mile region that covers most of the east coast of the United States and includes all or parts of 12 other states. Some of the states included in the Appalachian region include New York, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, and Mississippi. Often misunderstood, this region, the Appalachian region, is home to some of the best writers and publishers in the United States. And this program, now Appalachia, seeks to profile those authors and publishers. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to bring you the best authors and publishers who are living in, writing about, and connected to Appalachia. And we are pleased to be joined by another outstanding Appalachian author today, Kimberly Collins, and we're going to be talking to her about her new book, Blood Creek, Mingo County Chronicles, Book One. And uh, Kimberly Collins joins us. She grew up in Matewan, West Virginia. She currently lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. And in addition to writing and just finishing Mingo Chronicles, uh, Book One, she is currently busy working on the second book to the Mingo Chronicles, tentatively titled The Massacre. And she has a website with more information about herself and her books and her writing, and that is Blue Mingo Press, all one word, dot com. And Kimberly, we want to welcome you to Now Appalachia. Great to have you on the program today. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So I wanted to talk uh, so many things to talk about your book um, you're taking us back in time to 1912 West Virginia in your novel uh, tell us a little bit sort of set the scene for us and kind of describe for us what's going on in 1912 West Virginia and how that relates to some of what we're going to see and what we see uh, when we follow your characters and follow your story as it as it develops so in 1912 uh, the Blood Creek starts with Pink Creek and Cabin Creek, and there was um, um, that's pretty much where the mine wars started. And the miners, some of the mines in West Virginia at that time um, were unionized. They were part of the United Mine Workers of America. But then there were a few that weren't, and the workers were wanting to unionize because they felt that the mines that were that did belong to the union were getting better pay and better treatment and you know safer working conditions and, and all those things that the union was was fighting for and in paint creek um the co-operators were just determined to squash this rebellion as they saw it coming and and it just turned into a bloody bloody battle um, so my characters are kind of on the precipice of this, this battle that's getting started. And I'm telling that story through the perspective of the women. Um, and there's, you know, this society, high society, as I've tried to categorize it in my book in Charleston, in West Charleston, West Virginia, not the other Charleston. And my characters are, are kind of, uh, living in both both worlds 
the, the minor camp and the high society in Charleston. And one of those characters that we meet early on in your story that occupies sort of the, the dual roles and the dual societies, but uh, arrives kind of on the arm of uh, a man who's connected to the high society is a character named Ellie Klein. And she comes into Charleston, kind of sashays through, and she is uh, connected to John Havers, uh, who is a top lieutenant. Uh, to the Tom Feltz uh, organization. Um, and, and Ellie's really fascinating because uh, she's beautiful, she's young, um, and she quickly becomes kind of the gossip target or the target of a lot of gossip and whisper and innuendo uh, in Charleston because she just kind of sashays into town. Um, tell us a little bit about Ellie and what she's really up to and kind of the dual occupancy places that she adheres to both in society, but as a character herself, she has sort of dual um, responsibilities or dual things that she undertakes uh, as a character. Tell us a little bit about her. So Ellie is in, is a, was a real person. And in part one of Blood Creek, I pretty much stuck to Ellie's real story. And then in part two, I've taken Ellie off into my world of, of fiction and fantasy in my imagination. Um, but I want everyone who knows about the real Ellie to understand that in, in the second book of the Mingo Chronicles, she's going to come back to her, to her real, her real life. Um, but Ellie is, um, the real Ellie was actually very much ahead of her time. She danced to her own music. She did what she wanted to do. And so when Ellie goes uh, to Charleston, she's leaving behind quite a few secrets and some uh, baggage and a, and a past. She has a, a very storied past that she's leaving inmate one. And so when she gets to Charleston, you know, she's just always looking for a better life. She's looking for a better way a man with more money. She meets John Havers with the full intent of trading, trading up as soon as she can. But she quickly finds out when she gets to Charleston that she's in a position to um, help the people she loves the most in the world. Uh, and those are the people in Nate One and her family and her sister and her cousin. Um, so Ellie's, Ellie's trapped in, in this this place of I want to do better. I want to I want to have everything that life has to offer me, but she's willing to sacrifice that to be a, a spy is the, the best term uh, for the miners. So she's gathering all this information that she can from the Baldwin Phelps people, and she's taking it back to her family who is actually fighting for for the miners. And Ellie Ellie's in a in a in an awkward position and she's, she's really walking, uh, she's walking the knife's edge, trying to get, you know, to keep her cushy little comfortable life and also to make sure that this rebellion that's brewing with the miners, that she does everything she can to help them. And Ellie also has, amidst an end to those secrets that you're talking about, she's got um, a husband who is on the run for killing her lover. Uh, as you mentioned with her family, a baby daughter uh, that is living mm -hmm. with her cousin back in Mate One. As she kind of comes to Charleston, she's got that past from behind. Um, and then she has a new lover 
that she meets and kind of sneaks into her bedroom while John Havers is away traveling and doing things that he has to do for business. So she really, not only is she kind of straddling <laughs> both of those worlds, but she is, she is doing and making decisions on her own. As you said, sort of a woman ahead of her time, she's making decisions on her own that are really complicating things and making things a little bit more difficult for her, isn't she? <laughs> she does. And, and you know, when I'm writing it, I'm thinking, you know, people are going to think this, this, oh, this wouldn't happen, and, and no one would be this crazy, and, you know, women didn't do this, but the real Ellie that this is inspired by really did a lot worse than I portrayed in the book, so I think that, yeah, I think it, that it could happen, and she, she, definitely, um, she definitely played with fire. One of the things I liked about her, too, Kimberly, is that I don't really feel like she ever is telling everybody the complete and total truth and that she's really being mm -hmm. honest with everybody about everything. And an example of that's on page 280 where she's talking with Sammy and uh, they're trying to figure out kind of what the next steps are going to be. And, you know, what is Sammy and Ellie going to be doing and when is John coming back and all of that. And she, she says to him, she says, go to Ohio and let this cool down a bit. Rumor is the governor's going to lift martial law in the next week or so, which means John will be back here in Charleston more. He's already suspicious, and he seems even more angry and agitated every time he returns from Paint Creek. And um, th then another the conversation continues. I'll be in Ohio for a few weeks, maybe a month. I don't want to leave you alone here, Ellie. And that's what Sammy says. And then she just kind of responds very curtly, I'll be fine. You know, so she, she, she kind of is uh, – being um, a, a kind of character who kind of tells people what they want to hear in certain circumstances and is never mm. really completely honest and totally factual. And I, re I really saw that kind of come to a head when she was having that discussion uh, with Sammy. And, and she does that a lot. She, she kind of takes on this, this persona of, of kind of moving people around and pushing people into different uh, discussions and conversations based on what she needs or what she wants. And I just wanted to ask you, as a writer trying to create that character and keep that going as part of her character arc throughout the entire book, was that difficult? And how did you kind of manage all of that to make sure that she's kind of pushing everybody's buttons in the way that she wants them all the time? Well, I know we all know people who are manipulators. I mean, I think everyone has been manipulated by someone in their lives. Um, and Ellie is a master manipulator and a bit narcissistic and even though she has good intentions for what she's doing with her spying escapades and you know sharing information with the miners of what Baldwin Phelps what their next moves are but she is 100% it's all about her and I'll do this for you but I'm going to make sure that what I'm doing is really for me. So everything is about her and her well-being and what is best for her ultimately. I think she's just so good at manipulating. And as I'm telling the story, and you're a writer, so I'm sure you understand this, and it sounds crazy to people who don't write, but it's kind of like you have these voices in your head and they're they're dictating the story and you're you're just transcribing basically. So as much as I wanted to turn Ellie into this fairy godmother, Cinderella kind of person and make her, you know, at the end of the book, turn out to be this wonderful person and have, you know, her come to Jesus meeting and, and really turn a new leaf. 
that's not Ellie's character. And the more I tried to write that, to, to shift it a little bit, it, it, w- it just wouldn't happen. It just Ellie's character, as I kept writing, she just kept coming back to being that manipulative person that she is. And she does do some good things. You know, you, you love her and you hate her and you love to hate her and you hate to love her. She's just that, that person. Um, but I think it's mostly just her manipulative characteristics at the end of the day, trump everything else that she's doing. It's yeah. all, it's all about her. Absolutely. And there was another example of that that I wanted to point out in chapter 38 where she's going down uh, the hotel dining room for breakfast and uh, Myrtle is there and Ellie's there and Joan is there. And she just makes this this statement uh, where Joan says something like uh, Myrtle makes a statement um, about, uh, you know, there, there's some big raid coming up at, at Mucklow. They had some sort of skirmish this morning and the boys uh, that was there. Uh, they's going to show these stupid miners who's in charge. That's what Myrtle's saying. And um, Joan says, well, that's the same information I received as well. And then Ellie chimes in, oh my, it sounds serious. I hope it's nothing dangerous. What are they planning? And, and I'm reading that and I'm thinking, you're, you're looking for these kernels of information to suit yourself and suit your agenda. You're not genuinely concerned uh, about, right. those, about those men and those circumstances. And there are just so many moments where where her subtle, actions and statements are, as you said, so manipulative. And you know that she's trying to mine these kernels of information from different people uh, to kind of push her own agenda and get what she wants and to put people where she wants them to be so that she can accomplish her goals. And it just, I just thought it was a a wonderful aspect of storytelling um, in, in creating her and putting her in these situations where, you know, every little behavior and statement that she makes, you know, she's building up to some sort of a selfish, uh, result as a result of that. I wanted to ask you too, Kimberly, about the research, because I feel like I learned a lot about what was going on in this period in 1912 in West Virginia. Even though I'm from West Virginia like you, and I've taken West Virginia history, I don't know how many times, and talked about this period, and certainly this this leads up to um, uh, what happens uh, in Logan in the early 1920s, where uh, mm-hmm. President Harding uh, sends the um, sends the, uh, the the federal troops or the National Guard into Logan County uh, to, to deal with that miners uprising. And, and we know that from history. But I feel like I still learned a lot about, you know, what was going on in this time period and, uh, you know, learning about, Tom, about you know, Tom Feltz and kind of their motivations and what John Havers was up to. I just want to ask you about the research involved in this. And did you research all of that first before you started working on the novel itself or did you intertwine those together and then stop periodically and go back and do more research? How did the research component work when you were putting this book together? Well, I started writing and I knew, I knew Tom and Ellie's story um, because Tom is my brother-in-law's great grandfather. Um, And so I knew a lot about Tom and Ellie. So I started writing that. And I knew I was going to write about the mine wars. And I actually started writing about the massacre. And when I was doing research on the massacre, I stumbled across the information about Pink Creek and Cabin Creek. And and like you, it had been almost a blip on the West Virginia history that I, that I knew of. And I thought, yeah, I knew that this happened, but I didn't realize all the things that actually happened and how horrific it really was. And so as I kept researching, I just 
I knew I had to take eight steps back and make that the focal of of Blood Creek. I knew that that was where I needed to start because I I think that that um, those events fed into what happened with the massacre in Blair Mountain and all those things, and they all fit together like a giant puzzle. So the research I did, I read everything that I could find um, from magazine articles, historical documents, books on the mine wars, everything about Mother Jones. I read and read and read and read and read and read. And the things I discovered, um, I'm thinking if I don't know these things, if I didn't know these details about this, then a lot of other people who live in West Virginia probably don't know either. And I think that a lot of people in the area, because you, you get kind of immune to it. You know, it's like I grew up hearing all about the mine wars and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and then until you're older, you don't appreciate the history of where you come from. And I think that so many people don't know that all these things happened. And I would like to point out that that all of the the actual mine war events that Baldwin Phelps and the miners, all the skirmishes, all the fights, all the uh, sniper attacks, all of that, those are real events. And I tried very hard not to embellish those or, or take anything away from them. I pretty much have included them in the story as history has reported them happening. Um, but they're just happening through my character's eyes. Uh, that's the only, the only difference. Um, but yeah, I was very um, surprised at the Bull Moose special. I didn't know about that. Um, all the times that martial law um, happened, didn't know about that. And just the way they, they treated the people and that they that were dying of starvation and disease, it, it was just, it was mind boggling to me. But um, I think a lot of West Virginians, not just the rest of the country, but I think just West Virginians need, need to know our history and, and what really happened during that time. I heard someone, and it, it was a history professor, uh, Dr. Lutz at Marshall, who uh, often said this about this period. And I wanted to get your comments to his quote. Um, he says this about this period in West Virginia history. And he was a, a scholar of West Virginia history, was from West Virginia, from Southern West Virginia. But he often said that um, what we see in the early 1900s leading up through uh, the 1950s, but that period that you're writing about, kind of 1900 up until really when um, – uh, Homer Hickam writes about what's going on in coal mining and coal camps in the 1950s, late 1950s with Rocket Boys, his memoir. But, but that time period, he said, um, it is a form of slavery, a form of Appalachian yeah. slavery uh, that oftentimes gets overlooked and does not get enough serious treatment. Do you feel that that is true as you've done this research and, and you've put this story together all, all, uh, you know, about Ellie, who was, who was real, but, you know, as you mentioned, took, took some fictional liberties here. But do, do you find that to be true when you look at this period uh, in West Virginia history, that this was kind of um, Appalachian slavery uh, for these miners and these men that were going through the, the, these terrible working conditions? And as you mentioned, the disease and living in these coal camps and having to be paid in company script and shopping company stores and all that. Do you find that to be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And like you said, they paid them in script. The only place they could shop was the company store. The company store charged exorbitant prices. So they were in debt before they even got their payday. They're already in debt. They lived in company housing for which they paid way too much for. If they had transportation to and from the mines, 
that was company transportation that they had to pay for. They had to go to the company doctor. They, their whole lives were controlled by the coal company. And it was a system they could never break free from. And people are like, well, why didn't they just leave? I was like, well, they didn't have money and they were in debt up to their eyeballs to their employers. So how were they going to go and where were they going to go? And to say that they lived in company houses, the company houses were shacks, nothing more than a shack. And, and they were paying them not even in U.S. currency. So yeah, it was absolutely a, a, a form of slavery. And, and then people wonder why they fought back and why there, why there was this uprising and this, this armed insurrection is basically what it, what it amounted to. So yeah, I can completely agree with that. So Kimberly, who are some writers that influence you? Who are some writers that, as you think about writing, as you think about taking on another book project, who are some writers that have influenced you or writers that you find yourself going back to for inspiration or ideas as you put books together? You know, I read so many different people that that is the hardest question for me to answer. Uh, <laughs> it's probably the one question that I regret every time. And, I'm, and I keep thinking, you know, I should probably have something in my pocket here <laughs> just to throw out there. <laughs> but, um, but there are so many people that I, that I read and admire. And oddly enough, I enjoy reading nonfiction more than I do fiction. And... Um, but as far as a fiction writer, and I know that a lot of people don't like the genre, but I think that Stephen King is a master storyteller. You may not like the story, but he's a master storyteller and character development. If I'm stuck on, on a character or just trying to figure out how, how is my character thinking and what are they looking at and what are they seeing, I will just stop when I get stuck. I will go back and read a Stephen King short story and just kind of get into a character's head. It, it really definitely helps. Um, but I, I honestly can't narrow down specific authors that I'm, that I, that I love or that inspire me. I think I just look for, um, a good storyteller. I, I like to be told a good story and whether that's someone who writes, if that's a play, a book, my sister, my mother, my cousins, my uncles, whoever it might be. I just like, I like a good storyteller. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. And I'm glad you mentioned Stephen King. Um, you know, I, I started reading Stephen King a long time ago and I kind of, I like his earlier stuff, uh, you know, Pet Cemetery and Carrie and those kinds of mm -hmm. books more than I do more of his contemporary things. But you're absolutely right. I think there is nothing better for a writer to do if you're looking for how to tell story than to kind of deconstruct one of Stephen King's stories, not, not for the storyline or the plot or the gore or the violence or whatever, but right. pay attention to how he structures a story. And I think his book on writing, uh, which that's just the title of it, on writing, oh, needs to be yeah. on every writer's shelf. Uh, yep, that is thinking favorites. about writing or, or, or is considering it, or maybe has just started, or mm -hmm. maybe has a book or two out. You need to get that book and read it because the advice he gives is spot on and it really will uh, help you be a better writer. We're talking with Kimberly Collins here on now Appalachia. We've been talking with her about her writing career and her newest book, blood Creek Mingo Chronicles book one. Um, 
I wanted to ask you too, Kimberly, as, as we go through the book and uh, the parts are divided, uh, we see some quotes. There, there's a quote from Mother Jones, I think, in between book three and four. Uh, the, wh- why did you put those quotes in there by, by some of those folks? And how did you go about choosing which ones to include? Well, it was really hard. So when I wrote my first book, Simple Choices, um, with each chapter, I had a quote, song lyrics, or something. And, and it fits because there was, there was something in my head for that book in every, every chapter that I wrote. There's like, there was something specific that just jumped out at me for a quote at the beginning of the chapter. Blood Creek has a lot of chapters. It's, um, she's a, I like to call her a thick girl. She's a very thick girl and a lot of chapters. So I thought that's not going to be possible. So as I'm going through the parts or the sections of the book, um, I just wanted something to kind of tee it up, you know, just to kind of set the tone of each of those, uh, those parts. Um, and the, the quote by Mother Jones, um, because that part of that part three of the book is more about her and her involvement. And, you know, she's there and she's in, all, in a lot of the scenes. And, and I love that quote that you, you know, be a hellraiser. And I think we all need to be hellraisers for things that we really, truly believe in. And I also love the quote at the beginning of part four comes from Revelation chapter 16, verse four. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And I think, you know, that is an excellent quote that kind of segues into the the last part of the novel in terms of what's happening and and, and what's going on there. So I I really thought that was a unique touch. And I I didn't notice the quotes as much. I mean, I read them as I was reading the book, but after I had read the book, I went back and read those quotes again, and I felt like they took on much more significance because I could see, as you were saying with the Mother Jones quote, how everything ties in and how everything ties together. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious, Kimberly, how long did it take you to write this book? Because it's a wonderful book, but as you (laughs) mentioned, it is a long book. Um, It's nearly uh, uh, almost 400 or over 440 pages, counting the acknowledgments. Um, how long did it take you to write this? And um, I know with your job that you travel a lot and you're gone away from home for long periods of time. So how long did it take you to write this and what was your process like? And how do you get the writing done when you're traveling so much for work? It felt like it took a lifetime <laughs> to write this book. <laughs> uh, and I literally, I feel like I've given birth to like 18 children uh, with this with this book. It took a lot longer than I had anticipated. Um, so a couple of things happened. So I, I started writing and was plodding along very well, doing great writing, researching, just kind of in tandem. And then my sister unexpectedly uh, was killed in a car accident. And that just, I just stopped me in my tracks on almost every front for about a year. Um, it was just hard to focus on anything after that happened. So that really just stopped the whole process. And then I woke up one day and I thought, I've got to get back to Ellie or Ellie's, Ellie's going to leave me if I don't get back to Ellie. So I started writing again. And then I, I, and I don't have a writing process. Um, and I know I'm, I'm not disciplined in that way. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I do travel for my job. I travel almost every week. So 
I do a lot of writing in airports. I do a lot of writing on airplanes and hotel rooms, um, in a restaurant, in a bar, in a coffee shop, wherever I can park myself and, and write. I don't write every day. Um, I, I write in chunks of time. If, if, if my news shows up, I will sit down and do nothing. I'll lock myself away and write for four or five days at a time. Um, but with this book, I kept writing as it was almost like I would start and stop and start and stop and start and stop. And it was just, it was almost like being in a car that's, that's running out of gas. And I just was like sputtering. <laughs> I felt like I was sputtering along for such a long time with this book. Um, and my editor and I, we, we would go, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And it just, I almost felt like at the end of it that I was just cobbling it together, just given my, my time constraints with my job. But it took four and a half years wow. to get the book written. Wow. Yeah. And that, yeah, but, and you and consider that for a year, I basically just stopped writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research was the, the long pole in the tent. Absolutely. Um, because I wanted to make sure I had the details right. And I don't know if you've ever done research for anything like this, but one thing that I did discover that kind of surprised me and annoyed me at the same time is that there are a lot of historical texts on a subject, and I'm assuming that all subjects are are like this, but on, on the mind wars in particular, there were a lot of texts that didn't match. One would say one thing, one would say another thing, and I'm and I had to keep researching little tiny details of the story to find the truth and what what really happened. And a lo- and a lot of the things, um, dates, times, how an event happened, what really happened, who was really there. Um, there were just I guess it's just a lot of different perspectives on these events and you have to read all of them to find to find the middle of the path and and that took a lot of time just kind of parsing those pieces out and finding these things for instance i read a book um uh make one before the massacre and i'm reading the book and i read the piece about tom chapin and it's just like two pages maybe was all that there was about him in there and they were wrong. The information was wrong, completely incorrect. And then after that, I'm doubting everything that I'm reading, right? Because I think, well, if this is wrong, then are all these other pieces of information that I've gathered or all these other details wrong, not just from that book, but from other books and other articles and, you know, these historical archives that I've collected, is any of this inaccurate. So I just had to keep digging and keep digging and keep digging until, you know, it was, it was more, I, um, um, if I have 10, 10, the 10 that match and two that don't, I'm going to go with the 10. So that took a lot of time and I would write the details and I wanted to make sure I had the mind war events, the real events that happened. I wanted to make sure that I had them as accurate as possible because this is about the place I'm from. It's about my home. And I, I didn't want to write a book that portrayed it inaccurately or incorrectly. And I am not 
the local historian, and I do not claim to be. <laughs> I am just a girl who decided to dig all this information up and, and write about it. But, but the historical accounts of anything are basically perspectives of people. You know, if you and I see the same accident, your perspective will be different from mine. You'll remember things that I don't remember, and I'll remember things you don't remember. So digging through all these archives, um, it took some time. Well, it all came out uh, very well in this outstanding book. And in our final moments with you today, Kimberly, if someone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about your writing, to talk to you about Blood Creek, to find out more about your first book, or to just stay in touch with you, uh, how can they get in contact with you, first of all? And secondly, where can they get copies of your book? Uh I can, the easiest way to contact me is on my website at bloomingopress.com. And if you want to go there and reach out to me on social media, all my links are on my webpage. Um, and the book can be purchased pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any, anywhere you can buy a book, you should be able to get Blood Creek. Kimberly Collins has been our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We've been talking with her about her career and as a writer, her process as a writer, and most importantly, her latest book, Blood Creek, Mingo Chronicles, book one. Kimberly, an outstanding book, and as you mentioned, took you four and a half years to, to finish it, uh, but it was well worth it for readers. It's a fantastic story, well-researched, well-written, and I am frustrated and enamored with Ellie Klein at the same time. She's a wonderful <laughs> character and uh, I, I loved following her and all of her journeys throughout uh, this entire book. So congratulations on the book and uh, as you keep writing and keep uh, working on this series, uh, we'd love to have you back on to talk about it. So thanks so much for coming on Now Appalachia. Oh, thank you so much. That's going to do it for us for this edition of Now Appalachia. I want to take a moment to say thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack. And remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Until next time, I'm your host, Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. <laughs>